Hello and welcome to this month's Education Roundup, where we discuss a selection of articles we've published recently. I'm Helen MacDonald, Head of Education at BMJ and a GP. Hello, I'm Kate Adlington. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a psychiatry trainee, but I've also quite recently been working on medical wards. We're going to talk about HIV testing, novel psychoactive substances or legal highs as they're more commonly known, and finally an article on how important it is to support relatives of someone who's dying. So first, why don't we turn to this piece that we've got um, about making an offer of an HIV test or screen for an adult who doesn't have um, symptoms of HIV, which I thought was really interesting from um, a GP point of view, but this must be something you've come across as well, Kate, both in your work in acute medicine and then um, more recently in psychiatry. What what did you um, find interesting in this piece? Yeah, so I suppose um, certainly uh, it was interesting particularly looking at the aspect from an asymptomatic adult because there are lots of cases where a patient might present for other reasons where actually it it would be perfectly reasonable to offer them an HIV, HIV test along with other blood tests that you might be doing. Um, so from that perspective, it was useful. And particularly, it kind of, it gave that very simple kind of question in there that that you could use. And I'm kind of looking at that question, I thought, actually, that's something that I, you know, would find useful. Yeah, what was Deborah's question? Okay, it was... Um, we're in an area where HIV is fairly common, um, so we offer an HIV test to every new patient that either registers us with us or every new patient that's admitted to hospital or even everyone having a blood test. Um, and would you like to be tested? So it I, sounds very simple. It does sound very simple, <laughs> but it's funny because without actually seeing that question, you know, you might think, oh, well, how, how do I introduce this to this um I know, and it's really interesting that she was saying when I was talking to her that actually a lot of this is almost in doctors' heads that we, I mean, even if you maybe you don't have the idea to offer the test in the first place but even if you do have the idea that we have a kind of mental fear of making the offer and that actually when you look at the literature patients um don't find it a problem being asked that and actually if you think about it if somebody asked you that it it sort of makes sense and I don't think anyone would feel particularly affronted or offended or and I think you're right it does it kind of debunks those myths that I think are in doctors minds you know those barriers those mental barriers you think well you know am I gonna have to take a should I take a long you know sexual history before I then offer it and it says no no you don't need to do that you know um do I uh you know do I need to do a you know a an examination and look for signs that someone might have an, an, you know, infection. And actually, you know, you don't even need to do an examination. Um, I think interestingly, then even once you've done a test, I think maybe lots of people think, well, maybe I need to do, if a test comes back positive, maybe I should do a second test before referring on to specialist services. And, you know, again, kind of debunks that and says, no, one test is fine and then refer. So I think there are, there are a few points that, you know, it maybe looks at myths that or, or misperceptions that we might have that, that might be outdated and kind of quite sort of simply debunks them and and makes it seem much more straightforward than we might otherwise think mm. and deborah had um maybe we'll call on her podcast at this point mm. but deborah had nice ways of explaining and giving a bit more information if patients should want to understand a bit more about what an HIV test would mean, what would be the upsides of having a test, the downsides of having a test, what are the advantages and disadvantages about knowing Mm. your diagnosis? 
it's important that patients are aware that it's a simple blood test and often um, they don't need to have any additional blood tests to what they would normally be having. So, for example, if somebody's coming for their routine um, thyroid function test because they're on thyroxine, for example, then you might be able to take a blood sample at the same time. So that might make it more acceptable to people. Um, other things for them to be aware of are that um, HIV is a very treatable condition these days. And as I mentioned before, um, people who are diagnosed and on treatment have a, a normal life expectancy if the HIV is caught early and the treatment works for them, which it does for most people. Um, the way that I talk to patients about it is to say that it's the people who don't know that they've got HIV who get really sick. And so my, uh, I would always encourage patients to access an HIV test because the earlier we know they've got it, the earlier we can do something about it and the less chance there is of them getting um, serious infections, um, some types of cancers, etc. So the positives greatly outweigh the negatives. So what are the negatives of getting a test? So if a test is negative, there aren't any negatives apart from perhaps some anxiety from the patient that they might have an infection until they know what the result of that test is. If you have a positive uh, positive result, then the negatives of that are that you have to deal with that diagnosis. Um, you might be worried about sharing the diagnosis with other people. Um, it is a chronic disease, so it's something that you're going to have to deal with for the rest of your life. But actually not knowing about it is much worse than knowing about it. The whole point of this article is that making this offer of an HIV test is routine. Do you think it really is? Someone's in hospital and you send, you think, okay, we're going to send, uh, well, I do it a lot, actually, mental health patients come in and you should, you know, it's if, uh, as part of their sort of routine admission bloods, you should send a screen and as part of that, for you know, HIV. Uh, well, you send a screen for sort of a things. new, a new yeah, <laughs> thing, so a new sort of, and it, depending on what they present with, but usually you'll do, you know, your FPC, use and ease, you know, you might, um, uh, say if you know if it's acute change in their mental state, you might send a confusion screen. So thinking mm -hmm. about B twelve and and also as part of sort of a gen general screen, you might send a viral screen. Um, and I'm th I think as part of that as a viral screen, you would include in there HIV, Hep B, Hep C. I suppose my question would be: Would you mention that as part of that viral screen? Would you have to specifically mention you are sending an HIV blood test as well as a Hep B blood test as well as Hep C blood test? Or, or is it something that you have to sort of name and explain more than any other tests that you would send? Well, I think Deborah's saying no. I think she's saying it's... If you were going to... Well, I think there's an argument here, so yeah. uh, certainly, that if you're going to send a whole variety of tests for a particular um, symptom mm. that perhaps you shouldn't be singling out HIV any more than you might single out another infection or another medical condition like diabetes. Mm. I think that's what she's saying. But I guess mm. she's saying if you were going to sit down with a, a very um, either interested patient to know exactly what was going to be sent away, then then I guess you would list it, but yeah. it would probably be amongst everything else. I think she's yeah. saying, don't make it special. Yeah. It should be like any other test. So I suppose it definitely, I definitely have seen a change in my practice um, and sort of in attitudes of doctors maybe towards it over time. Um, but I don't know, that's just, you know, I don't know if that's reflected 
if that's everyone's experience. I think in primary care, the other issue is time, really. Mm. That Certainly in the UK, when you've got a very small amount of time, even if you're in one of those high prevalence areas, you feel um, compelled to address the agenda that the patient is coming with that day. Um, and although I don't necessarily view offering an HIV test um, necessarily any differently than you would if you noticed that they were a certain age and hadn't got a blood pressure reading. I'm, I might be equally disinclined to do both of those things purely because um, I, I don't perceive that there's time to do that today and that as brief as this question is, you can't predict exactly how any patient would respond to it and you would want to ensure that you had adequate time to address any concerns that they might have. And unless I was pretty confident that they were likely to have few, I think... At the back of my mind, the biggest barrier for me would be in delaying either the conversation that they wanted to have that day or um, adding on an extra delay that mm. I didn't really need to have. I, I suppose the other thing that I just found really useful about um, the article is is figure one. And I suppose it's particularly useful for anyone practising in London because you can just look at the... Um, map of London which shows the sort of prevalence of HIV diagnosis and just see that wherever you're based whatever setting wherever it would be appropriate to um, test someone for whatever reason you know whatever reason they're presenting to healthcare services apart from I think one area kind of in and I can't I don't I can't name it's like it it's heading it's, out towards Essex yeah yeah <laughs> far east of um, but I suppose then it's a little bit more complicated looking at the kind of broader setting of the UK is that there, you know rates are lower elsewhere so it, so it might in in those i suppose in those areas where prevalence doesn't quite reach that i think it was the 2.5 um, per thousand um it might not be quite as easy there because clinically you don't have that um immediate justification that says you can offer the test um to the person but, I but hopefully you can still learn from this piece in making the offer more routine to those people in higher risk groups that yeah. if you do see somebody that's new to the area or a patient that you haven't seen for a long time that is from a higher risk group that you don't think just because you're outside um, the the highest um, density not to offer. Yeah. Um, and Deborah does make the point in, in, in the article that the, um, I think it's the highest proportion of or the, the sort of missing group of people um, who don't know they have HIV actually that's highest in in um, white um, heterosexual uh, UK population. Mm. I think Deborah did actually address this. And the advice and this is um, from both the British HIV Association guidance and NICE guidance is that an HIV test should be offered to everybody registering with a GP, everybody admitted to hospital and everybody who's being offered a blood test for any other reason. So it's really broad um, the advice is on, on who to test. And the reason for that is that people who aren't diagnosed get sick and people who are diagnosed stay healthy. And so diagnosing early is, is the best way of, of ensuring that people in our population stay healthy. And the other thing is that when you look at it um, on a risk basis, you tend to miss a lot of people who you wouldn't um, identify as being at risk. So most people who are undiagnosed in the UK um, as a percentage are um, white, British, heterosexual um, men and women because people are less likely to think about testing them for HIV. So if you've got a 
um, a universal testing policy, then those patients aren't going to get missed and they're going to stay healthy. That article is called The Offer of an HIV Screen to Asymptomatic Adults and is now on bmj.com. So while we were talking to Deborah, um, I thought we'd ask her about our second article this week. So up in Manchester, where Deborah works, they run a club drug clinic. Um, and the second thing we want to talk about this week is a package of two articles which are about novel psychoactive substances. So these are um, substances otherwise known as legal highs or have been known as legal highs. Um, here's what Deborah had to say. So um, in the context, context of sexual health, um, chemsex has become a really big problem in the past few years. And chemsex is um, basically the use of drugs um, during sex and as part of their sexual experience and is commonly seen in men who have sex with men. Um, so it was really interesting to read about the um, classification of the um, novel psychoactive substances because um, it wasn't something something that I was aware of before. Um, certainly in my experience, the, the drugs that are commonly used in chemsex are things like um, crystal meth and um, a drug called G, um, but also uh, methadrone is commonly used, and that was something that was uh, talked about in this article in the context of stimulant um, substances. So, in all my sexual health um, and GU and HIV consultations, we ask about. Um, lifestyle factors, smoking, alcohol, and drugs. So um, they're questions that we ask everybody, so I'm not making judgments based on the person that I see in front of me. We ask what they take and the method um, that they take it. So a really uh, good piece of advice that I received was um, not to assume how anybody's taking the drugs. So it's okay to ask whether it's snorted or injected because most drugs can be taken in most ways. I think I had an anxiety that if I didn't know that I'd look um, like an idiot in front of a patient for asking that question. Um, but actually, it's a good way of getting the information. If, if they tell you in the first place, they're normally quite happy to tell you more. So if it's substances that you're not familiar with, then it's okay to ask. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. It's all about harm reduction. So if they are uh, snorting, do they know about not sharing straws, for example, because there's a very small risk of spreading infections like hepatitis. If they're injecting them, do they know about needle exchanges? Do they know about sharing needles? Um, are they practicing safe injecting? So you might want to have a look at their injecting sites. Um, it's quite common for people to get infections and abscess formation from injecting. Um, 
And then the last thing is about uh, risk behaviour as well. So people are much more likely to undertake risky behaviour, so my specialty, risky sex, if they're under the influence of um, alcohol or drugs than they are if, um, if they're sober. So having a conversation with them about um, what they're doing when they're under the influence and whether I think having them to make the connection between aspects of their life that they're not happy with and how drugs or alcohol might be um, affecting those those aspects. So that, I suppose that's a really important point that Deborah makes that it might be difficult to ask about um it might be difficult to ask some of these questions. Helen, this is something, do you find that you have anxiety or find it difficult to ask um, patients about their drug use sometimes? I don't think I necessarily find it difficult to ask about the use, but I would say I do have anxiety about the limits of my knowledge about recreational drugs, be they any recreational drugs or novel psychoactive substances. And I found it very useful to look at the infographic that was done with this piece um, to, to understand a bit more. People who are listening should look at the infographic because mm. it's very helpful. <laughs> um, the thing that I found most helpful is that you split it into these four categories. Yeah. And I suppose I didn't realise necessarily that novel psychoactive substances can just be divided up really as you would divide any other drug up yeah. into basically stimulants, things that make you hallucinate, um, depressant drugs and cannabinoids. And just knowing that in essence they're just like any other drug. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that makes it easier because maybe you've kind of learnt how to ask about drugs previously, you know, before the emergence of maybe some of these n- new novel substances. And actually, you don't need to change how you ask about them, what you ask about them necessarily, because they still fit into those kind of previous categories. Um, and what you know about the other drugs in those classes will probably ring sort of true for these novel substances. But it's just to be aware that they might have new names and um, that particularly, and that's uh, one of the key aspects for sort of mental health um, services is that, you know, the, the novel cannabinoids, certainly, and I think this is discussed in one of the po- uh, by the authors in the podcast, separate podcast that they did, but they're having seeing much kind of um, higher rates of um, psychosis actually with the novel uh, uh, cannabinoids. Maybe we should listen to that bit. In mental health, cannabis has always been a problematic drug for us. It's linked, it's causally associated with psychosis and the same with the scras or the cannabinoids. The anxiety for us with that class of drug is unlike cannabis, which is THC is the active ingredient, it's a partial agonist, with the NPS variants, they're full agonists, so they seem more potent. The other interesting thing is that cannabis has lots of different compounds in it. One of them, cannabidiol, is an antipsychotic, and the NPS variants don't have that. So they seem more potent, at least some of them. But certainly, I, I suppose, an interesting thing to look at is that, yeah, there are, there are these, that people might be presenting, you know, under the influence of these novel drugs acutely or you have to think about the fact that chronic use might also be responsible for their presentation but again one of the things also that um is really important to sort of bear in mind and think about particularly if dealing with inpatients is thinking about um what you know sudden withdrawal of the use and i suppose this is true for all drugs but it does it does point out for with the novel um with the mps drugs that you know there is 
possibility for psychological withdrawal and physiological withdrawal and just to bear that in mind that 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 you know is the case for the older drugs but also these uh, novel drugs and you really need to be mm. thinking about that with mm. patients particularly in patients so they kind of divide it up to talk about acute problems that mm. are coming in and uncovering more chronic use and i i guess yeah in, in that acute setting i found it useful um the parts that the authors were saying about just asking very direct questions when you've got somebody that might be intoxicated on one of these drugs mm. you just need to be really quite blunt about mm. saying what have you taken yeah um and at that stage during acute use, the symptoms that they're experiencing much be, might be much more easy to attribute to the actual drug at that stage. Um, the other thing that I found useful was to think that most of the drugs have a duration of action somewhere between one or two days. So if you're talking about seeing somebody that's just taken something as a one-off, if they're a couple of days down the line and still not feeling right, um, it, it does give you... I guess, uh, a way of saying you might have expected everything to have cleared up by yeah. this point in time. And I guess for you, assessing people yeah. um, psychiatrically, yeah. if you need to wait for time to pass in order for them to not be intoxicated, then it's useful to know that timing. And also to keep an eye out for what the key, medically the key red flags during that time period might be, um, particularly very elevated body temperature. Yeah. We've been talking about two articles about novel psychoactive substances, one of them on the types of substances and the other on management tips. So the final piece that I wanted us to talk about this week is a change of pace from um, drug use. Um, and I'd like us to talk about a education article which we commissioned about supporting relatives who are caring for their um relatives at the end of life. Kate, you edited this piece and, and you had a podcast with the authors. Um, tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so um, this was a essential, Essentials article that was written by um, a team of authors, including um, a uh, patient author who had experience herself of um, being bereaved as both a mother and a daughter. And, and the article looked at... Um, very common scenario for um, for all doctors, really, whether you work in the community or a hospital, of of having a patient who is who is dying, but also and and the sort of complicated aspects of the clinical care around for them, but also looking at how you might um, communicate with that person's uh, relatives, friends, loved ones in the period both leading up to their death but also immediately after their death mm -hmm. and thinking about how you might provide care both for that patient but also support um, for, as we said, for their relatives and loved ones and how that can actually be a really tricky um, and difficult thing to do um, both for, the, for, for doctors, for the clinical team but also a very difficult time for the relatives as well. And what were the key things that you took away from this? I suppose that... Um, key thing that I took away from it was it is all and it sounds like a really basic point but it is all about communication and I think they start the article looking at evidence as to why this is important and talk about how um Evidence from hospital surveys show that one of the major areas of complaint from relatives is around the care of the dying. And actually, it's about poor communication around that time. And they have a brilliant quote at the start of the article where they say, um, how people die remains in the memory of those who live on. And I think that's really true for those complaints, which is 
attributed to Cicely Saunders, who was an English doctor, amongst other things, and best known for her role in the hospice movement. I think that was such yeah, a nice way to... It really was, yeah. And both... Open the piece. Yeah, both Catherine and Jane talk really passionately about why that is important and, and why that was sort of a motivation for them for writing this piece. It's, it's a wonderfully important um, quote, that, isn't it? Because I know that in my experience of death, um, the memories do live on after the person has died and it's very important to address that because you're left with some really strong feelings and certainly with my mother um, who died in hospital very suddenly um, I felt really upset really confused and very much in the dark um, and that had been my first experience of death in a medical setting um, a few years previously, I'd experienced the death of my son, but he was traveling and I hadn't been there when he died. And so for me to be with someone who was dying, it was even more important that I understood and that I kind of could get close to her and I, I didn't know what to do. So I'm left with some bad memories and that's why that quote is very relevant. In a way, though, I think Cicely's quote doesn't quite go far enough because a bad death not only stays in people's memory, but it affects that person's day-to-day -day living potentially for years. There's quite good evidence that people who are well supported in death and bereavement by specialist palliative care teams, they have better outcomes, both short and long term. They're more able to move on with their own lives. So good end-of-life care isn't just the morally right thing to do for the, for the patient. It's actually essential for the good of society. Um, but I think they both pick up on and particularly Catherine picked up on um, why communication around this time is tricky and it was about um, a lot about communicating uncertainty and, and talk about how obviously when, when patients are dying there is a lot of uncertainty around that time around kind of what's happening, why it's happening, how long it's taking and, and sort of how actually as doctors often we find it difficult to communicate that uncertainty um, So how can we do it better? Well I think the the key point that's made is actually just being honest about it, being honest if you're being asked something that you don't know the answer to, um, but then emphasising that actually, you know, you, you don't know, but you'll do your best to find out. Or if there isn't a, an answer, you know, for example, someone might ask, how long does a patient have? And you might not have an answer. And there isn't one necessarily, because really, it's very difficult to say, just being honest about that with people. I think, um, I think the other thing is also to not, they make the point of not to av avoid the conversation just because of that uncertainty. So I think, um, yeah, because bizarrely, although a lot of this is about um, what you might not be able to say, I suppose you can anticipate the types of things that patients are going to worry about mm. or you might have heard them ask that question and using some of those techniques that perhaps you use in other consultations like um, a lot of people or a lot of relatives at this stage might worry about X, Y and Z or yeah. wonder what might happen next. Yeah. Um, particularly if the conversations are difficult to have, might just give them a way to try and express the yeah. kinds of concerns that they've got so that you can at least have a stab at addressing them or, or just to acknowledge, yeah. yes, it's, it's very hard to predict that, yeah. but we'll keep an eye on it and yeah. we'll tell you as much as we can mm. and we'll try and keep them as comfortable as they can. Mm. There, was a, there was a great passage in it which I, I really enjoyed. Um, it was about these 
really practical things mm. that actually you can provide answers to. So there may be many things which we cannot answer, but there are lots of useful things that we can answer, like um, if you're in a hospital setting, what are the visiting hours? Um, can relatives stay overnight? Um, can kids come and visit on the ward? Yeah. Where can you park? Are there quiet rooms where you can go? Do people want spiritual support? Um, can you make a drink? Or where can you get food and drinks mm. from? Um, and who is a good point of contact if they've got any questions? Um, and particularly thinking about, and I, I remember this um, in family situations of my own, thinking through what what do you want to happen overnight? If yeah. you know, do you want to stay overnight? If you don't want to stay overnight, do you want us to call in the middle of the night if something were to change? Or yeah. would you want us to call if they yeah. died overnight? Or would you want us to wait until the morning? So I think. As much as you might imagine that there's nothing that you can answer, there is actually quite a lot of reassuring information that you can say and patients may not have thought of all of those things up front mm. but are, I would have thought, likely to welcome some practical yeah. advice about how they can just arrange themselves over what is a very stressful period of time. Definitely. And I think it's really important as well not to have made assumptions about any of those actually as well. It's really important, you know, you might presume that someone did want to be called when actually maybe for whatever reason they didn't and that night they wanted you know they needed to have a good night rest or, or whatever and 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 I think that's particularly important when it comes to and they, they touch very briefly on it but kind of different cultural considerations so whether someone has particular kind of religious beliefs cultural beliefs needs otherwise um, and and actually there wasn't really space or it wouldn't be possible in any article to go through all the different kind of cultural practices around um you know death before or after death but the point that Catherine made was that actually and and as doctors we we might not be completely aware of all the cultural practice in the local communities where we work but it's really important to not make assumptions and actually ask whether people have any particular religious cultural beliefs that are important at that point um and and find out what they are and see if you if there's any way of um, addressing them. A good thing to do, my advice would be if you don't know the answer to some of these questions, the best people to ask on the ward are the nursing staff. Certainly, one one of the things I found I found difficult um, in my in in my experience um, when looking after patients who are dying has been around um, pain relief and um, the concerns there is often a concern kind of with families and also personally you know I, I remember um, having heard things during training about the um, the fact that giving opioids there might be a risk of it speeding up someone's death that's definitely something that is kind of has been voiced by families before um, and and that I've kind of struggled maybe to to uh, communicate or to to understand maybe even myself in the past um and I think Catherine touches on that and it, and it makes it really clear that that shouldn't be an issue sometimes healthcare professionals um I think we're taught sometimes that we have to use this thing called the doctrine of double effect to justify opioid treatments that although opioids might cause a harm we're giving them in order to provide a benefit but we simply don't need to use that doctrine to justify the use of opioids because there is no evidence that they'll hasten death. And that is a very common concern among relatives and also a common belief 
among some healthcare professionals. So it's really important that we just get rid of that one straight away. Catherine also had some good tips at getting better at these sorts of conversations. I was a junior doctor. I I graduated in the late 90s when, I mean, I think the hospital I worked in didn't even have a palliative care team. And I, I worked for a consultant who literally did not enter the rooms of dying patients. Um, So I sort of learned a lot about what was wrong before I learned how you might do it well. Um, So my first thing would be to to start having those conversations, even if you don't have the answers. And then I would also say, learn from your peers and learn from your seniors. And if you know that your consultant is about to go and break some bad news to a patient or a patient's relative, ask if you can go with them and just sit in the room and learn from how your consultant or registrar or whatever is handling that conversation. And if you're really keen or similarly really concerned, phone your local palliative care team and say, actually, I really find even walking into the room to have these conversations difficult. Can I, can I come along with one of the palliative care team and just observe how you handle this kind of conversation. I think that sort of experience really helps. It's interesting Catherine talks about learning from others um, and it reminds me of one of my first jobs on a gastroenterology ward where I cared for several patients who were dying quite rapidly from pancreatic cancer. And during that time, the palliative care team came down to the ward. And one of the things I really remember was going on the ward rounds with the palliative care team and just learning so much and really switching my focus from talking about symptoms that were related to pancreatic cancer to talking about symptoms that were just related to dying and ensuring that people were comfortable and and going through with patients Um, I suppose getting it in my head to routinely talk about things like pain, um, how their mouth felt, whether they were hungry, whether they were thirsty, whether they'd been able to go to the loo, if there was any discomfort in their their tummy. So I, I I couldn't recommend enough taking advantage of those opportunities as and when they come along to to sit with people who do this all the time. And actually, that was that was one of the points that Catherine made was that, um, you know, often this is junior doctors, um, you know, on the ward at the weekend in the middle of the night without, you know, much senior co- cover, perhaps a consultant around. And, and it, it's hard, it's scary, but there is support out there. And, you know, often there will be a palliative care person on call. So if, if you are, you know, stuck and, and you need some advice or you need some support, then, then to, to, to seek that help, to ask. Catherine and Jane's article, Supporting Relatives and Carers at the End of a Patient's Life, is now available on bmj.com. That's all for this roundup. We'll be back soon with a new selection of education articles from BMJ. I'm Helen MacDonald. I'm Kate Adlington. Goodbye for now. Bye.